It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Looking out for each other and treating each other as more important than yourselves. That's the theme of today's message in Pastor Rick's continuing series on finding joy in our journey. This is part four, and today he's in Philippians chapter two, looking at verses one through four in a sermon he's entitled Boys in the Boat. Here's Pastor Rick. Six crew from the from the University of Washington that went from backwater obscurity to winning the gold medal in the Berlin Olympics of that year. Few sports carry the aristocratic pedigree of crew, especially when you start thinking about most of the crews that win any kinds of awards are from Yale and Harvard and, and Princeton. But no one imagined that a crew from Washington, uh, of all places, could be competitive. And yet the University of Washington put together a crew of diverse men, eight of them, kids raised on farms, they were raised from logging towns, they were raised from being around shipyards. And they blew away all of their Californian competitors and blew away the cream of the crop from back in New England. And like you said, they joined the Olympic team and went on to win the gold medal. Now that ragtag group of eight men won by maintaining a sense of unity in diversity. The author of the book, Boys in the Boat, Daniel James Brown, explains how the eight individuals of varying statures, physiques, and personalities capitalized on their diversity. Listen to some of his words in this book. He said, races are won by crews with a carefully balanced blend of both physical abilities and personalities. A crew composed entirely of amped up, overly aggressive oarsmen will degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in the boat. Or... They'll exhaust themselves in the first leg of a race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. Well, Daniel goes on to say, good crews are a blend of personalities. Someone to lead the charge and someone to hold something in reserve. Someone to pick a fight and someone to make peace. Someone to think things through and someone to charge ahead without thinking. And somehow all this must mesh, he writes. And that's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept others as they are. And it's an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. Did you hear what what James Brown said or what he wrote? There can be a sense of unity amidst diversity, but it comes by each one recognizing their place, accepting it, and then accepting others as they are. Wow, does that speak to us? Because the church of Jesus Christ, 
working as it should, every little group or gathering of Christ followers is a place where incredible diversity can be a very exquisite thing if it can come together in just the right way. Now, in our diversity, we've got a diversity that very few other groups manage. We have a diversity of age and gender and maturity and race and culture. And boy, it can be our beauty and it can also be our bane. When it works, folks, it is a wonder to behold. And when it doesn't work, most of us want to go try to find a hole to crawl into. Now, before we become overly critical of the church, do you realize how steep a challenge that is? And even the first generation of believers were hard-pressed to get it right. That's why in almost every single book of the New Testament that Paul writes, he encourages this. Let me just give you one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, he appeals to the church at Corinth and says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So experiencing authentic harmony and unity among us as the body of Christ is a very real possibility. But do we appreciate that it's not going to happen automatically? Every one of us, myself included, has a part in it either being our beauty or our bane. So as we come to Philippians... And we come to the second chapter as we continue, like I said, in our study. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to his readers, both then and now, that we might have joy in our journey. And that sense of joy, as we're going to see in just a few moments as we look from verse 1 to verse 4, is deepened when there's authentic harmony with one another. But we've got an enemy to it. We've got an enemy that seeks to destroy or minimize that authentic harmony that we can really enjoy. But what we often forget is that the enemy is not out there. The enemy's in here. So in these opening four verses of chapter 2, Paul's going to describe the three aspects of what it takes for the followers of Jesus Christ to live in joyful harmony with each other. And what he's what is going to point out to us is he's going to point out where it begins, how it spreads, and how each believer's attitude contributes to it. That's where we're headed. So, first, verse 1. Notice how Paul mentions that harmony originates by what we've been given. Philippians 2, 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. That's verse 1. Stop right there. Notice that every believer has been given four incentives that is the basis, that are the basis for harmony in our relationships. Now, every one of these begins with a little word, if. Though some of your translations may only give you the first if, every one of these four, the word if is there in the original language Paul uses. But don't misunderstand, when Paul uses that word if, he's not talking about something that's hypothetical. Well, you know, if this could be true. No, he's talking about, he's saying it is true, but he's using the if clause there. 
He assumes that each of these ifs is true. So first of all, notice, if there is any encouragement in Christ, we have been given encouragement. And that little word literally means support. In Paul's day, architects would use this very same word for a bracket or a brace that would support a cornice or come up underneath an arch to to hold it there and support it. So what's Paul saying? Believers, followers of Jesus, have this constant daily support of Christ himself. Here's a couple of verses in the New Testament where that same word encouragement is used in some other places. For example, Romans chapter 15, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement, there's that word, of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement, again, there's that word repeated again, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Or another one is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal encouragement and good hope through grace, encourage your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So Paul is trying to remind us of the wonderful privilege we have of receiving from our Lord the supportive encouragement we need for every day of our lives. That's the first. Now notice in verse 1, he moves on to the second thing that we have received. We've been given comfort. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. By the way, this word comfort, it's only used one other place in the whole New Testament besides here in Philippians 2, and that is John chapter 11. And you know the story of John chapter 11. Who just died? Lazarus, right. Great friend of Jesus. Brother of Mary and Martha. And so we're told in John chapter 11 that after he died in verse 19 and in verse 31 that their friends came to console and comfort them. So this word, comfort, as it's used here, is describing what we receive from others when we experience loss, when life takes someone or something precious away from us, when our heart is grieving. This is the kind of comfort that is ours, that is given to us. And notice that it is a comfort that comes from love. Because we're dearly loved. First John chapter 4 and verse 16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I mean, just think about this. Jesus, God's own son, came and lived here on earth. He completely understands suffering loss. He completely understands living with a broken heart because something has died or someone has died. And the Holy Spirit brings us his comfort to ease our burden and to invite us to trust his heart every single day. Look at the third gift we've been given. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. We have received and we have been given a fellowship. Again, some of your translations have the word participation, but it's literally the word fellowship. Each believer enjoys a special, the special relationship 
with God through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes it feel so real and vital to us. So if we've got the Holy Spirit living within us, that means we have his power, we have his guidance, we have his gifts, we have his fruits. Through the Spirit, we have everything that we need to experience this close and personal relationship with God the Father. (coughs) Look at the fourth gift. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy. The fourth gift is that we've been given tenderness and compassion. That's what some of your translations have there. Hold your finger here in Philippians 2. We'll come back, but jump back into the Psalms for just a quick moment. Turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. Literally, he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Oh, for those of us who are dads, and are either in the middle of raising our kids or we have experienced and a lot of our life has been a part of raising kids. We know what it means to temper our responses towards our children. Why? Because we realize they lack maturity, they lack experience, they lack knowledge. And so we temper our responses to them accordingly. What? Out of tenderness, out of compassion. So God, our Father, understands our weaknesses. He understands that as his children, we've got imperfections. He is not, he is not a harsh taskmaster, but rather a sensitive and caring Father who knows that we are but dust. So what we've been given... Paul points out we've been given encouragement, we've been given comfort, we've been given fellowship, we've been given tenderness and compassion. These are four things that we have been given that reveal where harmony originates. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but it does remind us that each of these gifts that we have been given is what makes our relationship with Jesus Christ so special and so real. So, if you're in a conversation with someone, and they're using the if word, again, like Paul, assuming something is true. So, you know, Rick, if this is true, and if this is true, and if this is true, and if this is true, in that conversation, what would you expect the next word to be? Then. And that's what verse 2 gives us. It completes the if-then idea. So, In Paul's thinking, on the basis of verse 1, then something is supposed to happen. That's the flow of his thinking here. On the basis of what Christ has given me, these four wonderful gifts, then harmony replicates by what we give. And this is verse 2. So just as we've been given four wonderful things... Each believer is then to go ahead and pass along four wonderful things that will help us have harmony in the body of Christ with other fellow believers. Well, what are they? First, verse 2, 
So complete my joy. One, by being of the same mind. The first thing that we can give away is we can be like-minded. Now, being of the same mind, or in some of your translations, being like-minded, does not mean identical thinking. Because literally the idea means to come together in our thinking, in our attitudes. So, don't misunderstand, unity does not demand uniformity. Our thinking and concerns are to be in harmony with other members of the body of Christ. But again, remember the context here. If the first gift Paul mentioned, we could talk about any of the four up there in verse 1, but if the first gift that Paul mentioned was that I received supportive encouragement from Christ, then why can't I give that away to other believers so that we can live in a like-minded way, supporting each other? See, trust me on this. If each of us does not work on being like-minded, then we will tend to think that the other believer has lost their minds. That's what will happen. So we can have this real joy that comes from giving away to others this being of the same mind. Look at the second thing which will replicate harmony. Having the same love. Our love for one another is to be pure and consistent, to be unconditional. Because we have been loved unconditionally by our God through Jesus Christ. He doesn't put us on a performance standard of loving us only if we'll measure up. And so therefore that means we can turn around and give that kind of love to believers right around us. Look at the third thing we can give away. Not only being of the same mind, not only having the same love, but being in full accord. Again, some of your translations say being united in spirits. No, those words, united in spirit, or full accord, is really just one Greek word. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is ever used. And it literally means to share one's soul. It means to possess a common affection for others. So that word is trying to help us understand that among believers, there is supposed to be this authentic enjoyment of doing life together. We sense a, a common bond because we have a common Savior. Our hearts are knit together in a very special way because of our experience, our common experience of being redeemed in Jesus Christ. It unites us in spirit. Now look at the fourth thing that, that we can give to others that replicates harmony. The end of verse 2, and we can be of one mind. Literally, that means to be of the same purpose. Paul is literally asking us to be intent on having the same goals, of having the same vision, of all moving together in the same direction. That doesn't mean that everybody's doing the same thing. But it does mean that everyone is headed towards a common objective and isn't working at cross-purposes with each other. Okay? Let's pause for a moment. Let's look at what Paul's just done here in these first two verses. He's pointed out that since we've received such wonderful gifts from Christ, we are to then turn around and give that stuff away to, to others. We've been loved so we can love others. We've been, we want to be tight with Christ so we can be tight with other believers. God's been gracious to us so we can be gracious with those that we are a part of in the body of Christ. 
But now there's a key issue that Paul wants us to wrestle with if we really are going to contribute to having harmony with others so, it's a be- so that it becomes a beautiful thing among us. And this key issue that he's now going to look at in verse 3 and verse 4 is what powers my ability to give to others what I have received from Christ. And if this is missing, you won't be able to give what you have been given. What is that thing? It's my attitude. Paul moves from where harmony originates to how harmony replicates, and now he finishes with how harmony perpetuates by embracing humility. There is something very specific that every single one of us can do to strengthen the harmony of this church, and it's called embracing humility. Okay, well, what's humility? Well, Paul tells us. Notice in verse 3, Paul says humility is going to be seen in our attitude. And he begins with the negative. Because on the one hand, we can have motives, we can have an attitude that's not humble. And that's where he begins. So in verse 3, he begins by saying, do nothing. Anything left out of that? No. Do nothing from selfish or from selfish ambition or conceit. Okay, look at those two things he warns us about. First, Paul warns us about selfish ambition. This is the attitude of, what can you do for me? People with selfish ambition use other people for what they can get. It's the opposite of humility. It's a proud arrogance. Selfish ambition. Look at the second thing he warns. Also do nothing from conceit. This is the attitude of you can't do anything for me. Conceit doesn't believe we need other people. Okay, put those two together. Selfish ambition, what can you do for me? Conceit, you can't do anything for me. And both of those motives are not humbleness, but rather intensely proud attitudes. But on the other hand, now Paul turns to the positive. He challenges us to have a good motivation. Again, notice in the middle of verse 3, what's that word? But. So here's the contrast. Instead of, what can you do for me? Or, you can't do anything for me. Instead, Paul says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, be careful to understand what Paul is saying here. He does not say others are better than yourself. He is not implying that we are inferior to other people, as if we are a doormat. He does say, count others more significant. It is a frame in your thinking. It's the way we think. Okay, how do I do that? How do I consider others better than myself? Okay, just cultivate the opposite of what he just warned us about. So instead of selfish ambition of what can you do for me, then in my mental attitude I look at others and say, what can I do for you? Instead of conceit, you can't do anything for me, I need to think, you know what, I really need you. You bring things to the table I don't have, I could really use your assistance. See the flip-flop in humility from pride. 
Winston Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed overflowing? And he responded and said, yeah, it's quite flattering. But whenever I feel that way, I always remind myself that instead of making a political speech, I was going to be hanged. The crowd would be twice as large. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, that's good thinking. William Temple once wrote, Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself at all. Humility. And humility is going to powerfully, powerfully impact the harmony of any church. Pride destroys it, kills it. But Paul mentions that our attitude is going to have a very powerful impact because humility can be seen in our actions. It's not just a mental thing. It'll be seen. How? Well, verse 4. So let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, notice carefully what Paul says. Notice he's got this not only, but also construction in that sentence. In other words, humility does not abandon its own necessary agenda for the sake of others. It includes a concern for the agenda of others. Which means, my friends, God has given every single one of us, every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, the capacity to not only to pursue the agenda that he has given to me, but also to help others pursue their God-given agenda also. And so, if I am too busy to care and assist another believer with what they have on their plate, then I am too busy doing too much. For a humility of attitude will be seen in my actions. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was once asked to name, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Without hesitation, he replied, second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. But if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. We, in this room, are the boys in the boat. But the beauty of our harmony is not just going to happen automatically. It originates with what we've been given. It replicates by then what we choose to give away. And it perpetuates by each one of us choosing to embrace humility. Father, this is not a message for others before it's a message for me. But there could be others here this morning who, like me, in the quietness of this place, have sensed the tapping of the Holy Spirit on our shoulder 
to face some very proud parts of our hearts. Or we tend to treat others with a, what can you do for me? Or you can't do anything for me. And we need to ask you to forgive us. That all of the wonderful resources that you have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, we have kept to ourselves and not passed them along. Forgive us. For choosing an arrogance over a humility in our relationships, where we've been more concerned about our own agendas to the point where we don't even consider helping others with theirs. Forgive us. But Father, may the power of the harmony that Paul speaks about in these opening four verses of chapter 2 be ours. Father, we want to be audacious and bold enough to say, you can do it. Paul talked about it. It's possible. But may I realize it's got to begin with me. I can't control others. But I can choose to walk in humility before others. Father, we're going to see next week that that's exactly what your son did. And that's ultimately our example that we're to follow. But Father, would you change my heart and the relationships that I have and others of like-mindedness this morning that, that yearn for that same thing. Father, we come before you and say, change us. Be that dad to us that understands our weaknesses, understands our very forming that we are but dust and that you have given us your unconditional love to once again walk with you. Father, may that change us from the inside out. And we pray that in your supernatural, life-changing, powerful name, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.